At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Having acclaimed professional theater companies in Atlanta can be rewarding for students when those directors reach out to the education community. Actors Express Artistic Director Freddie Ashley is directing students from Oglethorpe University Theater in a production of Heather's The Musical. Later this hour, we'll hear from Oglethorpe Professor Matt Hoff with two actors from the show, which opens tonight at the Conant Center. First... There are some dancers with such amazing technique, they seem to defy gravity. The dance ensemble Bandaloop takes that to another level, literally. The world premiere of their piece, Field, will be performed in the air, with dancers scaffolded to the 725 Ponce building, which overlooks the East Side Trail of the Atlanta Beltline. That performance takes place October 1st through the 3rd, a presentation of Flux Projects, the organization that creates temporary public artwork around the city. Anne Dunnington is the executive director of Flux Projects. She joins us now via Zoom with Melesio Estrella, director of the Vertical Dance Ensemble Bandaloop. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Uh, we appreciate being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Malaysia, please tell us about Bandaloop and how they perform vertically. Sure. Yeah, Bandaloop was started in 1991. So this is actually our 30th year anniversary started by a woman named Amelia Rudolph, who was a dancer growing up in Chicago at Hubbard Street. And in the late 80s and early 90s, she started to get into rock climbing, like very seriously. She was a competitive rock climber and she realized when she was climbing in the mountains of California near Yosemite, that the rock climbing could inform her dancing and the dancing could actually inform her rock climbing. And so the question, the inquiry, of what happens when you mix the two art forms is a question that we're still answering 30 years later. And um, it evolved from the mountains to then move into urban spaces and the built environment. So we dance all around the world on buildings, bridges, 
still we dance on cliffs, trees, pretty much any vertical surface that can uh, work with our rock climbing gear, we're ready to explore. It is fantastic. And it just really boggles the mind because it looks as though you are on stage, but that stage is turned on its side. Uh, Melissa, how are the members of the ensemble harnessed in a way that still allows them to dance freely? Yeah, so that is something that we've learned over the years, how to really use uh, what really is essentially a, a rock climbing harness and how we can work with it and dance in a way that frees it up where we can almost forget about the harness. Well, we do work with a harness designer who designs a specially manufactured dancing harness for Bandaloop. So um, over the years, we've kind of learned what's worked and done some research and development of our own in order to make the most sort of range of movement possible in these climbing harnesses. And I imagine the auditions, you get the dancers who are interested, are this is self-selecting. You don't get people with a fear of heights. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, I, you know, I started this work about 18 years ago. I came into the company and I did have a fear of heights that I didn't know about until I was brought into these high angle situations. We like to say that we love our fear because it tells us that we love life and it keeps us vigilant. And safety is a huge part of what we do. And we have a very developed culture of safety, a triple checking system of all our gear. And every moment we get into a situation on the wall, safety is, is at the forefront of our minds. And so fear is a part of that. And it's not anything to throw away, but it's something to put in the passenger seat and have with us. Have there ever been any incidents you would rather have not had? You know, in 30 years, we have not had a serious incident. You know, we bonk our heads on fire escapes sometimes. You know, it more has to do with dancer performance and awareness of the space around us than it does with the gear or, or the physical situation we're in. Well, that speaks to your triple-pronged safety procedures. That speaks very well to it. And how did Flux and Bandaloop work? together to decide which building the dancers would perform from? So we had met through Madison Cario, who I believe you had interviewed when she was director of the arts for Georgia Tech. Yes. And then Jim Irwin, who is the head of and runs New City Development Company, had just built 725 Ponce. It actually was still being built when... I did a site visit there. I went with a board member, just loved the building, was really curious to see it. So he invited us over and we were walking around and we were on the fifth floor deck um, looking out over the belt line. And he looked up and he said, I don't suppose you have anything for that wall, do you? And I said, yes. And I I had met Malesio and Bandaloops ED and producer Thomas Cavanaugh when they'd been in Atlanta previously and just really hit it off and just always wanted to work with him. And when he said that, 
I went back to my office and I emailed him information on Bandaloop and Jim said, yes, that's it. And he helped us bring them in for a site visit in 2019. And this was planned as our 10 year celebration in 2020. And, you know, we know how that goes, but oh, yeah. um, Jim, you may know, or I feel realized in this site visit is the son of Atlanta gallerist, Ann Irwin. And he grew up with the arts and the arts just reverberate through that building. And now they're actually going to come out the walls, but it just sort of grew from there. And I can say that, you know, this project was pushed back a year because of COVID. Just the way the project developed, I found that when artists had this moment over the past year to sit with projects longer, and I just think all the things that happened in the world over that time, this project became so rich and so deep and so much more tied to location and space and Atlanta, but also opened up to become the, a national project as well. I, it has exceeded all my expectations for working with Bandaloop. And as you've seen their images, you go into it with pretty high expectations to start off. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> if you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Bandaloop Dance Ensemble Director Malacio Estrella and Anne Dennington, the Executive Director of Flux Project. How are the dancers able to express their bodies in ways they wouldn't be able to in a floor routine? What the harness and the rope on the side of a building affords is airtime, obviously airtime, but it's sort of like a dancer's dream to push off the floor and to soar for five to 10 seconds in one jump. And so it becomes sort of like a dreamscape kind of looks like it's in slow motion. It's very uh, demanding of the core muscles of the body for the dancers. So we like to say we make it look easy at its best, but, but it's actually you know, quite difficult at times. But what it affords us is this sort of vision of flight and a float that you really don't get on the ground. Let's talk about the world premiere of Field. How does this work shine a light on the global textile industry? Yes. Yeah, so it's a mixture for me as I was imagining field. You know, it comes from actually my grandmother who was interned and actually executed in the Philippines in World War II oh my God. Um, by the Japanese. And oh. while the story is while she was interned in a concentration camp, she would crochet she would crochet these elaborate bedspreads. And because she couldn't get more thread, she would unravel them and start again. And this was for the months leading to her eventual execution. You know, that really hit me as a fiber artist myself, someone who loves to knit, that really hit me as the sort of like, the act of making fabric can be and has been for generations, a soothing act, a healing act. And also, you know, to create heirlooms, you know, a lot of us have grandmothers and ancestors who have been making these fabrics for so long. And so there's something very sacred about fabric to me. And then, you know, kind of juxtaposing that to the sort of environmental devastation that's happening right now from 
the textile industry, from the globalized fashion industry and from fast fashion. You know, it's a vivid mixture of this love of fabric and also this sort of reckoning with how we get what we have on our bodies. You know, and all of us wear clothes mostly, right? Um, <laughs> most all of us wear clothes. And so it's, it's a real common ground that we don't think about. I have a sustainability consultant in Catherine Bottrill based in the UK who does a lot of sustainability consulting for the fashion industry and work in the um, sort of cotton supply chain analysis around the world. And it's quite, you know, a little bit of a depressing situation to, to look at it vividly. And it's like in the massive scale of it, you know, what can we do? You know, part of the work has been sort of doing research on sustainability movements in the fashion industry and also local fiber movements and recycled clothing movements, mending, and really how can we, in our daily actions with fabric, sort of have an impact. I was very surprised in doing the prep for our conversation to read about the extent to which global pollution comes from the textile industry, something like upwards of 20%. Yes, yeah. That's huge. It's huge. It takes 700, 700 gallons of water to make one t-shirt. You know, and we're looking at a time when you know, drought where we live in the West, you know, and in the Northwest of the U.S. Is, is huge. So, and the scarcity of water is a big deal in a lot of places in the world with climate change. And um, how do we reckon with these things? And, you know, we're not saints. We, we don't, we also, you know, buy fast fashion in our company. And, and as we become more aware, hopefully we can do it less and find other ways. Field is the second work of Loom a multi-year initiative. What is Loom and how does Field fit into the initiative? Yeah, so if you see a Bandeloupe show on the side of a building, you see that you know we rappel down these ropes that are hung vertically on the wall. And in a very real way, the wall becomes a loom where you know the warp of the loom are the ropes stretched down and the weft that runs side to side is actually our dance. So we feel like we're weaving a fabric of dance, sort of ephemeral fabric of dance on every building we go to. And loom is really the sort of textile ancestry umbrella that I explained before and field is the centerpiece of it. The first work we did that premiered at the momentary which is a contemporary art space in Bentonville, Arkansas, was called Flood. And it really dealt with water and the sort of impact of water and, and floods and the need we have for water and how water is actually life. And then we moved to field, you know, thinking about where our fibers come from. Are they natural? Are they synthetic? And also the deep history, of course, of field work in textiles and especially in, in the American South. And then the final piece, which is yet to be named, will complete the triptych in 2023. Oh, wow. The musical score includes live singing and spoken word from the ground while the dancers perform above. Who will perform below here in Atlanta? 
Yes, so we're traveling with a theater artist named Shibwese Crouch. And Shibwese comes actually from the Northwest and we've been collaborating with her. She's a, has a Nigerian mother, she's Nigerian American. She's an incredible writer and vocalist and she's not only going to be singing from the ground but she's also been training with the gear and will be also performing spoken word and singing from the wall. Oh, really? And what can you tell us about the score? You have a composer for the ensemble. Yes, our musical director and composer is Ben Udvalkis, and he also comes from Rhode Island. Actually, his parents were both working in textiles and taught at RISD at the Rhode Island School of Design. And so he grew up all around textiles. And I've been working with Ben for many years now, 10 years, making compositions for dance. He's bringing a real personal story to this work, to field. It's just a, a joy to work with. How long is each performance? The performance will be about 45 minutes long, give or take. The dancers have a limited time because of how hard it is to be in in a harness on the wall, you know, we got to limit these pieces. It's so physically strenuous to about, you know, anywhere from four to 10 minutes each piece. And then they get to the ground and then they find their way through stairways and hallways and elevators all the way back up to the roof and then clip in for the next piece. So we kind of do a cascading of, of different casts around the whole building. And it, at the 725 Ponds, that architecture is breathtaking. And the opportunity that, that Anne is giving us to actually create a stage out of this new architecture on the Beltline is incredible. And I'm, I'm really excited for you all to see. I'm curious, given that it's outdoors and people are walking and enjoying the scenery and the experience on the Beltline trails. How are you paid? Do people buy tickets? Lois, all of our work for Flux Projects is always free and open to the public. There are never any tickets. We, um, it is funded through private donations, grants from government agencies and foundations and corporate sponsorships. And we have some very generous corporate sponsors for this, including MailChimp, BlackRock, and PNC Bank. And I was hoping you would talk about how the intersection of art and environmental awareness, what is at the core of Bandaloop, how that fits with the kind of projects that Flux wants to engage. Very center. I mean, Flux Projects has always been about the city of Atlanta and responding to concerns uh, around the city and also needs of our artistic community. And if you follow the plan that Ryan Gravel helped do for the city of Atlanta, nature figures prominently in there. Um, Ryan Gravel designed the belt line. Yes, yes, thank you. The intersection of issues around climate and the environment with our work has been there for a while. I mean, going back as far as like 2013, when we were doing Flux Night, there was a lot there about water and rising water. Um, in 2018, we did Flux Grant Park, and that dealt with a you know a beloved green space in the city. 
will follow this with a project by Jonathan Keats that's looking at the Chattahoochee River and its tributaries and the human impact on our natural resources. So these issues are important to Flux projects and they are also important to the residents of Atlanta. And the environmental issues impact the social issues, if we look at how environmental problems disproportionately impact low-income neighborhoods and the history of that with our city, it could kind of go on and on weaving this web, literally, of how this touches so many things in our history and the city of Atlanta. On our website, we'll be building out continually more information on the project and sustainability, but also tips for how to access the project and view the project and the project field is on our homepage. Anne Dennington, the executive director of Flux Projects, and Bandeloup Ensemble director Melissa Estrella. The vertical dancers are performing outside of the 725 Ponce building on the east side trail of the Atlanta Beltline, Friday through Sunday. More information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll revisit my interview with that viola kid, Drew Alexander Ford. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With ambitions of wanting to be the Neil deGrasse Tyson of music, Drew Alexander Ford is changing the game for classical music. On social media, he's best known as That Viola Kid. The Juilliard-trained musician has also taken to the internet as a motivational speaker and mentor for young up-and-coming musicians. When he visited WABE studios a few years ago, he explained the story behind the name That Viola Kid. Initially, it came while I was thinking, because I'm a big gamer, and I've always, I love, I'm very competitive, uh, and online gaming is a way for me to really get that competitive nature out of myself, uh -huh. so when I'm playing music, I can be more 
community oriented and about the art. Uh, so it's a really great outlet for me. So I was in college and I was trying to figure out what sort of name could I use that would embody, you know, who I am and what I stand for. And it had to have viola. And I remembered when I was in high school, I did a uh, talent show. And a lot of the younger kids who didn't know who I was, I think I was a junior or senior, they were like, hey, wait, you look familiar. You're in the talent show, right? Aren't you like that like that viola kid that did the thing? <laughs> and so when I was thinking of a name for playing online video games, I remembered that moment. And I was like, yeah, I am that viola kid in particular. And it just... It, fell off the tongue really nice, and I just kind of decided to use that as I began my social media endeavors. So even though you are now a young man, yeah. you don't mind being known as me. You know, now that you mention it, Drew, I think one of the earliest classical musicians I knew mm-hmm. who, was, who took to social media mm-hmm. was violinist Josh Bell. Yes. And I think he was... Violin boy or something, fiddle, some, fiddle boy. Something, something like that. Yeah. You know, there's something endearing about it. And when I made it, I was 19 years old. So I still felt like a kid <laughs> for sure. And now you are. I'm, 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 I'm ancient. And so, <laughs> so I, I've actually started a rebranding campaign. I'm starting to branch into hip hop as TVK. So I'm just abbreviating. And I think that kind of, I don't have to change the essence of what I've built upon. But I can also grow as an adult and still have that brand. Wow. Well, let's hear a little bit of TVK (laughs) duality. We've got it. Yes. Okay. Yes, please. Got three stacks, like my name Andre. Competition can forget it, cause I'm in first place. But I'm really keeping track when I run this race. My cleans be digging in the grass, I'm about to give it chase. I'm on a path, you cannot feather in a foreign land. You be frozen like a dinner, go to eat your hungry man. Duality like light, particle and wave. Classical rap so nice, it's bound to be embraced. I'm just being me. Awkward your book face, Dr. Neil Tyson the music. Call me outer space. Hunt it on a dash, on a inner state. color splash, stoic inner state. I'ma serve you, wow, all up on your plate. Ooh, I'm swerving now, gotta keep it straight, cause you don't know how far I've come. I won't stop until I've won. Okay. <laughs> Walk us through this. For sure. So I named the track Duality because for the majority of, you know, the the recent years, at least the last eight or so years, I've been I've, I've been really attracted to hip hop. I've really been attracted to the inherent storytelling, the lyrical the lyrical ability to tell stories through symbolism and metaphor. And also just the 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 really rich nature of hip hop that I that I saw reflected from my classical background. It's all about the nuance. It's all about you know even when it comes down to like uh, processing the snare drum to be particularly snappy, so you have a certain essence behind the whole forward momentum of the track. Just being able to delve into that, I was like, oh, I want to do hip hop, but I'm classically trained and. I, I don't know if it's authentic to me. I don't think I can do it. And then I had a, I sat down with a few people that I really, 
really respected as musicians and they egged me on and they told me you can be an authentic hip hop artist and be classically trained. You can do both. There is duality. You can have duality at the same time. Just because you're a hip hop artist doesn't make you less of a classical musician. Just because you're doing quote unquote crossover art, it doesn't necessarily make you a bad, you know, classical musician. And I just had that, it was that cognitive dissonance that was preventing me from actually pursuing it. And so I figured the first track that I need to do as a hip hop artist needs to address that sort of trepidation and just say, you know what? No, duality can exist uh, just like it does in light. Yeah. Hey, (laughs) remember, this is one of the many times that I will invoke Duke Ellington. There are only two kinds of music, good and all the others. (laughs) So it's to avoid um, being in a category. Mm -hmm or in a silo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most great musicians welcome and embrace musical expression. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. no reason to feel inauthentic, but I also understand what you're saying about having grown up studying the tradition Mm -hmm. of European classical yes. music, which mm-hmm. um, you even mentioned at one point in a, is it in a YouTube video when you refer to dead white guys? Oh, that's also at the beginning of the track too. Yeah. Okay. And and yeah. we know you, you do not mean that in any pejorative There's, there's no way. pejorative at all. But how are you trying to expand the appeal of classical music to people who aren't familiar with the tradition. I I think what's interesting, uh, growing up here in Atlanta and being a part of the talent development program, I became very aware very quickly that as an African-American artist in, in classical music, I'm a rarity. But and and I always like, you know, and it kind of seems like, you know, kind of uh subconsciously or the subtext of what I was told in my upbringing or even as I've gone into my professional world is like, you are an exception. Like, you are exceptionally good. And I don't Mm. think that is the case. I think that being an African-American in classical music is only natural because it's not... It Yes, it is music written by Western European people, but at the core of it, it's it's storytelling about what it means to be human. Yes. Right? And I think that Somebody who wants to champion bringing more people into the stories of classical music, regardless of who wrote them, but the stories and the lessons therein, needs to be somebody who doesn't fit that traditional mold. To say that this is not just music for the elite uh, Caucasian people. This is for everyone. And it is a story that can be told to everyone. And a reason why I'm drawn especially to hip-hop is because lyrics have a special power. I had a producer friend of mine in New York say, you can make instrumental music all you want, but you can only go so far. If you want to be extremely explicit in your messaging and really tell true stories that can resonate with people on the atomic level, you need to figure out how to lyrically express those ideas as well. Mm. So it sounds like you were very drawn toward the 
poetic part of hip hop as oh, well. Oh, of course, of course. But there's there's nothing wrong with a good club banger too. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> there's balance. There needs to be balance in everything. But yes, I think having music with a message is something that I really. Uh, and pursuing at the current moment. So how have you used social media in order to change the narrative around classical music for millennials and younger? Well, I think it began initially as just a way for me when I was in college and I was just about to graduate from the Robert McDuffie Center for Strings at Mercer University. Uh, shout out to Robert McDuffie. He's oh, incredible. He, he changed my amazing. life. Took a chance on me. Uh, and I really appreciate him. And it's an amazing school. When I was there, they also have really, uh, the philosophy at Mercer is about entrepreneurialism and, and trying to figure out how to forge your own unique path as a musician outside of just relying on a symphony job. So I already had that sort of mentality going hmm. out of it. So when I was a senior and I was graduating, I was like, okay, how does a musician make money? Like I broke it down. Simplest, uh, simplest uh, elements as I possibly could. And the thing was, you make money as a musician if you play for people. How do you get people to care and show up to your concerts? I was like, I have no idea. Maybe I have to. And, and, and I think I a lot no of symphony orchestra marketing directors it's so share hard. that. But yeah. I learned through, not through music, but through uh, marketing. I learned through marketing and studying marketing that people don't care what you know unless they know that you care. And so I figured out if I want people to care about what I do, I need to answer questions that they have. I need to provide them personal value and build a personal relationship and connection with people. And using the internet, the internet is so efficient because you create one piece of content and it can be consumed forever at any time. I could be asleep and people are being introduced <laughs> to who I am and what I'm doing. And that idea of exponential exposure was what kind of fueled my idea of I need to provide value to people that I wish I had when I was growing up. So what, tell us, what are you what are you telling them on social media? And what, what you make tutorial videos yes. on YouTube. Well, you know what? You know what it is? A lot of it a lot of it really is me sharing lessons that I'm learning in real time. Uh, when I was at Juilliard, I was, if a teacher said something particularly incredible, first of all, I treated Instagram while I was in school as a personal diary. If I learned something that was amazing, that kind of changed my perspective on music, I put it as a caption in a picture so I could share that knowledge. You don't have to go to Juilliard to get this wisdom. I, I want to be able to provide that wisdom as I'm learning it because I think that's just... That's just the right thing to do. And then as I started providing my perspectives and the things that I'm learning, then people started asking specific questions like, how do you vibrato? I like your vibrato. You how do you do it? You are giving master classes. Yeah. Here. Wait, but going back to <laughs> yeah. the McDuffie School and yeah. and wanting a practical side, you're doing this for free on YouTube. Most, yeah, I don't really make money as a social media personality. I do most of it for free. You have collaborated with some pretty famous people, the likes of Ariana Grande, CeeLo mm. Green, Kendrick yeah. Lamar. Yeah. How have these artists shaped your music? Well, 
the conduit for those collaborations was actually Mac Miller, the late Mac Miller, unfortunately. Rest in peace. I was vaguely familiar with Mac Miller's music growing up. But when I had the opportunity in 2016 to play for his Divine Feminine album uh, through a Juilliard connection of mine, uh, I, got, I went to the studio and played with the string quartet and I met him. And seeing that man's joy and then hearing Kendrick, hearing CeeLo, hearing uh, Anderson Pock and Ariana Grande on his music, on that sort of project, and like really feeding off of their energy, while also meeting the man himself who is curating all that talent, really showed me that even in commercial hip-hop, there is a lot of care, there's a lot of art, with particular artists like Kendrick. The, those that put art first are pushing the culture of hip-hop forward. And so I realized that that's happening in classical music, that's happening in country, that happen, that's happening in jazz. It's happening in every genre. You have people who do the commercial side that really builds a lot. It's like, it's the sugar. It's like the essence of what it is. And then you have artists that are always pushing it forward, mm -hmm. that are always pushing the art form forward. They're taking influences from other people. And Mac Miller towards his end, you could hear funk influences. You could hear jazz influences. And that is just something that I was unaware of until I had met him. And so being around him, being around the people he worked with, was a huge encouragement for me to get into hip hop as a classically trained ah. instrumentalist. That was a big, that was one of those big moments. Another one was I sat down with my friend Lee England Jr. And he's an incredible violinist. He's like a hip hop violinist and he does a lot of improv and really incredible shows. And I sat down with him and I, and I was like, yo man, I'm thinking I want to do hip hop. And he was like, I could totally see that man. You should go for it. I was like, wait, what? But I'm classically trained. He's like, it doesn't matter, man. It's music. It's somebody that I respected giving me permission to do it. Mm -hmm. I seemed like the rebel type that doesn't need permission. But like, <laughs> just getting that social verification yeah, was so nice in involved. That validation. Mm -hmm. And so through my music, I want people to destroy his genre bias and invest in the arts again. Drew Alexander Ford, also known as. That Viola Kid. Since Drew and I last spoke, he started a podcast called Faking Notes. The weekly show is co-hosted by fellow professional musician Trevor Bumgarner, and they feature playful conversations with artists, influencers, and future titans of the music industry. Their tagline is fake notes till you can make notes and it's available wherever you get your podcasts coming up oglethorpe university theater and actors express collaborate for heathers the musical you're tuned to wabe atlanta This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Teen angst, murder, sex, and ghosts. Surprising subject matter for a musical, but the 1989 cult classic dark comedy film Heathers 
became a hit rock musical after its 2014 debut. Heather's The Musical opens this evening in Atlanta as a collaboration between Actors Express Theatre Company and Oglethorpe University Theatre Students. I'm joined now via Zoom by Associate Professor of Theatre at Oglethorpe and co-producer Matt Huff, along with actors Alexandria Joy and Zion Glenn. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm curious about a synopsis. What's the story of Heather's for those who have never seen the cult classic film? Well, it's a story about a young teen girl, and it's also a coming-of-age story in a way. She's a very brilliant human being, but she's surrounded by people who don't understand her. She meets this amazing guy out of nowhere who she thinks is amazing and she's stuck in this teen world of the, there's these mean girls and there's all the nerds like they're the, the cliques are just everywhere it is just senior year and she has to deal with it all over again but she knows it's the last time and she actually gets in with the most popular group in school and it ends up becoming this terrible, <laughs> terrible experience because she finds out how dark and cold and, and mean and nasty that these girls are. And it's not really something she wants to be a part of anymore. So she breaks free from it in a very, very, very brave way. Alexandria, I'm curious, you play Veronica, who first tries to join the Heathers, then joins a villainous plot to take them all down, along with the jocks. Were you a Heather in real life high school, or more of a misfit? <laughs> well, um... The truth is I was a uh, high school cheerleader. I was a gymnast growing up. So when my mother remarried and I moved to Canton, Georgia, I was uh, suddenly struck with an all white high school. I am biracial and I just never grew up in a school environment like that. So even though I was a cheerleader and I was in the in crowd, I was definitely always othered. It was always made known that I was just not quite like them. And I was also a theater kid. So it definitely was a balancing act for me because I just existed and I stayed out of the drama as much as I could, unless it was a show. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you have lots to draw from your own experience for this role. I definitely feel like I have a lot in common with Veronica. And Zion, did you pull from your own high school memories in bringing the role of the jock character Ram to life? Well, I kind of found myself in multiple different crowds and I was cool with the jocks. I was cool with the cheerleaders. I was I was a full on arts kid. So I was cool with theater and I was also in choir. And I also was really cool with like more academic students. So 
actually, I had to play a jock. <laughs> this isn't my first time playing a jock. I had to play a jock who wasn't as, I guess, evil as Ram Sweeney can be, but I had to pull on that, like, that cocky nature a little bit. I guess just from being in all circles and sometimes being the hype man, I was kind of a wild kid in uh, in high school. So uh, I was always the person they would come to whenever there was there was a dance party or a dance off, or they always came to me whenever I had to hype the crowd up. And there was a lot of moments like that in Heather's. So that's what I choose to draw from. Is there a moral to this story? Karma plays a huge part in this show. Agreed. Yeah. I think that one thing that comes to mind for me is just the idea of extremism in any form and that the extreme actions that these characters take to enact revenge on the popular group, they get completely out of hand and, and Veronica gets wound up in something that she never thought even possible. Yeah. So just that, that idea of how far is too far. Matt? How does the film version of Heather's influence or inform the musical? And how does the addition of music change the experience of the story? Well, the film is incredibly dark, an incredibly dark comedy. And the musical is able to capture that scathing satirical nature of the film, but also lift it up into the buoyancy of the American sort of pop musical theater style. And it's a good counterbalance between that, that darkness and the cruelty of the humor uh, and the irreverence of the humor in many cases with a much more kind of playful, fun and energetic tone that the music and the dance brings to it. I think to try and do this as a, as a non-musical play would be, uh, an, I think a really <laughs> painful experience given the nature of the material. Yeah. I agree. It gives though it takes those moments to give more explanation for what characters are feeling in the moment, because sometimes with film, you don't fully get the extent of emotion. And I feel like a lot of these songs help just bring more life to these characters. Spoken like a true musical theater actor. <laughs> And for one who is a huge fan, I hear exactly what you are saying, Alexandria. There's a lot of murder and mayhem in this story, even ghosts. It sounds like the production team must have pulled off some very cool special effects. Can you talk a bit about that? I guess I would say for some of the special effects, I know we have some fog for the Heathers, and I also assume for Ch uh, for Heather Chandler, and the lighting. I think the lighting is gonna play a really, really big part in adding that like eerie, ghostly effect for some of those scenes. Mm -hmm. Matt, why did Actors Express want to partner with Oglethorpe for this production? When Freddie approached me back in the spring, Actors Express was unable to use their own theater space due to the COVID regulations established by Actors' Equity. So he was reaching out to find a venue just simply in which to produce work, because otherwise they would not be able to produce at, at their own home. And as we begin talking about ideas, the thought of 
producing something during our academic semester that would be both equally a show for our academic program season and a show at Actors Express became really exciting to us. And it would allow us to involve the students in really exciting and upfront ways, not just on stage, but also backstage with the technical crew, et cetera. Eventually the guidelines changed and, and Actors Express was able to use their space, but we love the idea of collaborating together on something that we move forward with this idea. Well, I'm curious for the actors, what was it like working with polished professionals in this show? I know for me, it was honestly a a wild ride. I've been doing theater for a while, but I have, I've never done it at this level of professionalism. One of the best things about coming into the space and working with a professional is that Freddie said it very early on that there was no hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we were, maybe, we were maybe a little bit nervous and maybe a little bit intimidated the first, or maybe the first day or the first two days. But once we started learning the numbers, once we started doing the scenes and learning the music, we were all just there together in that space. I feel we all just, we were all just able to bond over that. And we just became an amazing, we just became an amazing cast. We were having so much fun together. Yeah, it's for me, I know for me personally, it's, it's, been a, it's been an amazing ride. I've loved every single minute of it. I'm always really excited, just can't wait for my classes to be done so I can just go ahead and come to rehearsal and be in a space with everyone again. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's been amazing. Oh, Alexandria, this is your Actors Express debut. How was your experience working with Oglethorpe students? It was such a breath of fresh air to see such amazing young minds. And they're not much younger than me, mind you. They are just so hungry for knowledge and for experience and to work and to perform. And I just love watching their pat like they're so passionate on stage and it was amazing to see how open-minded they were because there are a lot of things to learn i would have loved to do something like this in college i i did my first professional show in, in a summer stock but this particular kind of experience was something that i really craved in my undergrad it's really incredible to see how much they just oh gosh they just took the ball and just, they just, they just went, oh, what's the phrase? They hit the ground running. That's what it is. <laughs> we came in a week after they were already learning stuff. And we're like, oh my gosh, they're, they're so great. Well, Matt, given that a number of the members of this production are students from Oglethorpe, Getting to participate in a professional level production before they graduate, being directed by the likes of Freddie Ashley, what kind of advantage do you think this experience may provide these students? I think that it uplifts both the students and professionals in terms of the quality of the work that they're, they're doing equally. But for the students especially, you know, first of all, connections are so important in this industry. So it immediately connects them with people working outside of the academic world so that when they do graduate, they have references, they can network um, with people who are very familiar with their work. Uh, so that's so important. And of course, when these professionals come into the room, uh, you know, it does, even though the students are nervous, I think there's also that 
kind of like adrenaline that pushes them to a higher level, which is exciting. I think it benefits uh, the students in both of those ways. Oglethorpe producer Matt Huff with actors Alexandria Joy and Zion Glenn. Heather's The Musical opens tonight in the Conant Performing Arts Center at Oglethorpe University. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., together, Inga and Hip Hop Unite. The new show presented by the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company. We'll talk with creative directors Carrie Lee and A.J. Park. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.